Good morning, everyone. Uh, let's just pray as we open up God's Word. Father, we are, as we consider a very familiar story this morning, we're conscious that we need your spirit to help us, um, to help us see uh, just this great love that you have for us, but also to see of our need to draw near to you. Uh, help us as we look at this story, help us to to put ourselves under it, uh, to put ourselves in it, and, and to see what this means for us. Uh, we're reliant on you to do that this morning. And we ask this in the name of your Son. Amen. Uh, uh, we are looking at the moment of a four week series of the theme of real change. Um, we're in week three, and what we're doing through this series is, is thinking about how much we need Jesus, how much we need Jesus in our everyday lives, uh, especially if we're to become people that become more like Jesus, but people who become uh, people who glorify God in this world where we know we sin, where we know people sin against us, and where there's so much suffering and so much that's uncertain. A recap, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we looked in one from, from Jeremiah chapter 17 about how God is changing us and the purpose of which God is changing us is he wants us to be conformed to the image of his son, Jesus. And he's changing us in and through our situations and life, the heat of life, as we called it. And Jeremiah reminds us that how we react to these pressures of life can sometimes our reactions can be thorny uh, we can be a bit prickly and the reasons for those negative reactions come from our heart that our heart is deceitful that it's wicked that it's full of sin and that our hearts when our hearts turn from god no good comes as jeremiah 17 5 to 6 tell us we also see there was a great hope as well that there is a God who sits on the throne who is a redeemer, a healer, a saviour, and provides a way of redemption for us. Last week, we thought more about the heart. Our hearts are the real problem. Uh, how we speak and how we conduct ourselves express, expresses what is in our hearts. Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So we need to have our hearts filled with something other than ourselves and something other than other things or other people. We must fill our hearts with the love of God, with his spirit, with the truth of what Jesus has done for us. That's where we've been the last couple of weeks. Uh, next week, our last week, we'll be looking at the fruit. You know, how, how do we get this fruit? Where does it come from? What's its source? How does it last? This week, though, we want to think a bit about the process of change, and this is somewhat of a difficult um, thing to navigate because how do we change how does god's grace work in our hearts how does repentance work but we want to think about how we turn to god how we place our faith and trust in jesus's work for us for forgiveness for salvation for healing and redemption and how this happens because god has offered an invitation to all 
So this week, thinking about repentance and faith. And the text that I've chosen, uh, we've, we've got for us, is what's been read in Luke chapter 15. I'd love it if you could keep it open and just follow along uh, through the familiar story as we go through it. But just before we do that, just to break it up a bit, um, I just want us all to stand up, if you could. Just where you are, even if you're at home watching online, you must stand. Just, just to prove a point, okay? Uh, if you're the oldest in your family, the oldest sibling, please sit down. Yeah, I can make many comments, I have to be careful. But yeah, the bossy ones just sat down, that's all right. If you're the youngest, if you're the youngest, please sit down. Just got really quiet. It's noisy ones have sat down. Those who are left are the middle ones, the forgotten ones. <laughs> Kudos to us. Just acknowledging you this morning because this story isn't about you. <laughs> Please sit down. Um, but I just wanted to do that at the start because we're going to talk a lot about younger and older and I know personally what it's like to be left out as a middle child. So I just wanted to acknowledge us this morning and those of you others that are middle children. It's just worth acknowledging us. We're in the room. Jesus here in Luke chapter 15 told three stories about lost things. Um, the reason he told these stories was because there were certain people that were grumbling and complaining about the time he spent with certain people. First couple of verses of Luke 15 tell us that um, you know, tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to eat with him. And this made this, the, the Pharisees and the scribes grumble. This man... Um, receives sinners and eats with them and celebrates with them. These stories, the story of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and as we sometimes term it, the lost son or the lost sons, these show us that the heart of God is for those who are lost, those who need to turn back to him, those who need to be found, and those who need to be brought back to life, even from the dead. And that God has this heart for the lost, the, the, even those who have rejected him and despised him. And this, this familiar story, especially of the prodigal son, is it's simple. It's one we know well, but it's so powerful in what it conveys to us. It's, it's not just a lesson in, in what happens in life when we make bad choices, that choices have consequences, but it provides this snapshot of repentance, of turning to God. It shows us the love of God as well, displayed in the compassion and generosity of the Father in the story. And this story tells us about repentance. How does it do that? Well, hopefully that will become clear. But what does it tell us about real change? You know, what is repentance? How is repentance? In the words of Drax from Guardians of the Galaxy, I'll do you one better. Why is repentance? Why do we need to talk about it? What does it do? I don't promise to give you an answer to how that works this morning, just that we need it, that we need to turn to God. Author Jack Miller, in talking about Christians who misunderstand repentance, he said there's, there's two forms of Christians who misunderstand repentance. He said there's, there's those that call Jesus Lord, but don't live as though he is. 
those who call him Lord but have no intention of owning up to any sins, any mistakes, any falling short of God's glory, let alone turning from those things. And there's others who have an awareness of their guilt and uh, their sins before God, but they don't know how to remove these dark blots, as he puts it, from their lives. They don't know how to change. Jack Miller says both of these people may not know God fully, know God as the, the loving Father who gives his Son and welcomes sinners. Just as we'll see in this story, um, the Father doesn't count the younger son's actions against him. He doesn't reckon them against him. So God does not count our sins against us, as we're told in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 19. As we consider this story, I want, I want us to ask God and put ourselves under God this morning to reveal what's in our hearts, uh, that we'll see an image of our loving Heavenly Father who loves us and who longs for us to come to Him, to turn to Him. We've been thinking about certain questions over the last couple of weeks and I want us to think about a couple more questions this morning. And firstly, as we consider the younger son, I want us to consider this question of how is my heart affected when I get everything I want? How is my heart affected when I get everything that I want? There's many stories of, of people that have, have won the lottery and won millions of dollars, only to waste it all away within a very short amount of time. And not only that, many people that win uh, in such a way, not only waste their winnings, but they end up with this sort of lifestyle of addictive behaviour, of addictions and cycles of debt, and they end up worse off than they possibly were before. How long would it take your eye to waste all that we have if we suddenly got all we ever wanted? If you got everything you want and desire right in this moment, how long would that last? For you. It's what happens to the younger son in this story. He comes to his father and he says, give me the property, the inheritance that's coming to me. In doing that, he's doing a couple of things. He's basically wishing his father dead and excluding himself from the family and its future. But the surprising thing is the father actually gives him what he wants in this story. He gets exactly what he wants, and verse 14 tells us, after a short amount of time, we don't know how much time passed, but he goes to a far country and he finds there, he wastes everything that he's gotten, everything he wanted that he got, he wastes and he has nothing left. He goes from having everything he ever wanted to being in desperate need. He chooses this path in life that means that others had to give up their very lives and livelihoods and security and safety to fulfill his wants and desires. The word used there in verse 12 is the father divided the property is the very word for the father's life. The father is cutting himself in parts as it were. So his son could have what he's demanding. I wonder if you've ever been in such a place. 
Well, you've desired something so strongly that you're actually prepared to cut off all other things, all other relationships, priorities, responsibilities. You actually cause others to lose their own safety and security. And when you've got all that you've wanted, if it's worked out that way, you're still left with nothing at the end. You're not only no better off than you were, you might actually be worse. We've been talking about our friend that took a holiday over the last couple of weeks. We can return to him, maybe. What begins as sort of a thought or a dream or an anticipation of just the idea, even, just of a holiday near the beach, just to reward himself with some hard work from perceived hard work. This morphs then into plans which other people have to adapt to and have to come around to and be convinced of. And when the holiday actually happens, when you get to the beach and it's everything the picture on the internet says it was, this friend of ours feels even more entitled than he did even when he was beginning to dream or imagine of this opportunity. And then everything and everyone around that person has to come in line with the dream and the ambition and the desire. And what happens when that doesn't happen, we've thought about. When you can't control the people around you to meet your desires, what happens? Well, that person finds themselves maybe in a situation where their holiday has left themselves and everyone around them more stressed more anxious. That person then starts thinking of another holiday where things would be better, where things would be even better if only I did this or if only I did that or if they didn't do this or if I just went on my own. By the time you get to that stage, you realise that you've started to be attracted to pig food which is what happens to our youngest son in this story. He gets all he's ever wanted, all he's ever desired. He gets it, misses it, has nothing left. And then what is attractive to him? Pig food. Seems like a strange searching question for application this morning, but has piggy food ever become attractive to you? And we would rightly say if we got up here with a bucket of slop with all sorts of things mixed into it that we would not want to eat and we certainly wouldn't desire anybody to eat, we say, no, of course not. I would not be attracted to that. Maybe you've had some thoughts about someone that's come across your path in life. And you keep thinking about that person, all the ways they might possibly be able to be fulfill your desires. The more thought you give to this, the more air you give to the idea, you begin to even convince yourself that you're worthy of this indulgence of thought. And you, this starts to build in your heart even as a justified thing. You start pursuing this person in your mind and heart. 
which then moves to speech and conduct about how you behave. And even if you were to end up getting exactly what you want, you realise that person can't actually meet your deepest needs and desires and they haven't reached your expectations because you spent so long fantasising about what that would be like. No human being can actually meet them. So you start thinking about someone else and someone else and someone else and soon you find yourself sliding through mountains and mountains of images filling your mind and your heart with pig food. All these indulgences in thought and in action have created this cycle where you begin to desire things you could not possibly imagine or fathom you would ever have considered. Pig food becomes attractive when we fully give in to our own desires. There's a wonderful phrase, though, in verse 17, where the younger son came to himself. He came to himself. He sees the truth that he'd be better off in his father's home. In his father's house was a place of generosity, where everything he needed was provided, where he had a place at the table, where even servants had a place at the table. The Father's table is attractive to those who have lost everything. Even to those who have spurned the Father at some time, the table is still attractive. Because the Father's generosity has not changed. And he comes to himself to know that this was not just a minor inconvenience that he's committed against other people. This is a debt he can't repay. This is an error he can't undo. This is an offence he's guilty of and he can't actually afford the consequence or the judgement for it. This is a sin. And he rehearses in his mind, verse 18, and then when he goes to his father, notice the order of his sin in verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven, against God and against you. He acknowledges his sin as against heaven, against God, even in priority over the sin against his father. He knows he's broken God's commands to honour his father and mother. And he knows he's sinned greatly against his father and he confesses both. He owns both. Some of his return to his father is done sort of with this aim in mind, I'm going to repay what I, I'm going to become a hired servant. I'm not worthy to be identified as a child. I'll become a servant and somehow pay off what I owe. As if he could do that. And there is a debt we owe also to God that we cannot repay either. We cannot. Each one of us has fallen short of God's glory. Each one of us has sinned and rebelled against God. None of us have loved God as we should. Each of us have loved ourselves, things and others more than we love God at certain times. This younger son in Jesus' story acknowledges his debt and to whom he owes the debt 
and knows it's almost impossible to repay, but he's going to try. Jeremiah 17 showed us that the one who turns their heart from God is like that thorny shrub in the desert. No good coming. Whereas the one who trusts God finds healing and salvation, fruit, green leaves even in drought and dry. Turning to God instead of away from him is what we would call repentance. And all people are called to have repent, that repentance towards God and faith and trust in Jesus. And you might see here this morning and go, well, God hasn't given me a few million dollars to test what I would do with it. Whether I could be evaluated, whether I'd waste that or not. And that may well be true. But God has given you something far more valuable than all the inheritance in the world. He's given you your life. He's created you in his image. He's made you himself. He's given you breath and life. What have you done with that? It's only because of the life of God's only son that we can have new life. What do we do with this offer? What do we do with the invitation to come to the Father? We think now about the older son. And the question I want to consider here is how is my heart affected when I do not get what I think I deserve? How is my heart affected when I do not get what I think I deserve? And if we think about repentance, uh, Tim Keller in his book on this story, called, his book called The Prodigal God, talks about two things we need to repent of. Not only the things that we do wrong in rebellion against God and sin against him, but also the right things we do for the wrong reasons. That we can try and earn something that we couldn't possibly earn. There's another thing going on with a comparison between uh, the younger brother and the older as well. Just as the older brother looks at his younger brother and says, he's this, he's that, he's the son of yours, he's not my brother, all those sorts of things, and he's done this and he's done that. He's done all these things I can observe that he's done and condemns and judges him. We sometimes have a list of sins that are a bit more, they're a bit worse. They're, they're the bad ones. My issue, though, is that's, that's something separate, that we don't need to talk about that. We need to talk about this over here. There's this contrast going on between what um, another author has sort of said. There's this division between the sins of the body and the sins of the disposition or the temperament, the feelings. We tend to have some respectable sins, as Jerry Bridges puts it, like pride, anger. All these sorts of things are okay. We don't need to repent of those. But one of the signs Jeremiah has told us of the one who turns from God is they trust in others, but also that they trust in their own strength. Jeremiah 17, verse 5. And maybe you've had no great moral failure in your life. You've done your utmost to live a good life, even a godly life, an obedient life. You've kept the rules. You've done good to others. You've served sacrificially. You've never demanded anything of anyone. 
you certainly don't see yourself as that younger brother. You're not perfect, but you haven't done anything in your life that's worthy of God's attention or of your repentance. Well, Jesus is actually telling this story to the very people that thought that way. The Pharisees and the scribes that he's telling this story to, their exact issue was this. Jesus was associating with tax collectors and sinners, those who are not worthy of his attention, those who, those who didn't deserve a second chance, those who are too far gone. This is not just a story to encourage those who have wandered away from God to repent, or for those who have never known God to come to him in faith and repentance. It certainly shows us the wonder of God's love and encourages us to that. But it's also a story for those who are angry in life, those who feel entitled, those who rely on themselves, those who trust in their own works will save them, and those who refuse to celebrate God's grace. When thinking of the older brother in this story, it's, we have to reflect on that question. How is my heart affected when I do not get what I think I deserve? What does this brother speak? How does he act? Remember, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what by his words and his actions do we see his heart is full of? Well, Jesus gives a clue to his feelings. Verse 28 says he was angry. And this older son's anger is, is rooted in a heart that thinks he deserves what he believes he's earned. You notice he actually wants the father's property as well. He's been assuming that by his obedience and by his identity as the firstborn, that grants him his desires. By birthright, by obedience, he can have these things. So the older and the younger brother are actually desiring the same thing in a way, just going about it in different ways. And while the older brother has served his father obediently, he's done it thinking that at the end he's going to get what he desires most, the father's property, the father's blessing. He has been trusting in his own ability and strength. Pride blocks repentance and blocks us from taking our place at the table because there's the older father comes out to entreat and plead with the older brother to enter. He refuses to enter. He is too prideful. Anger is a deceptive thing. It's something that we can quickly see in others, but not always honest about ourselves, let alone where it's coming from. And anger is often rooted in this idea that I deserve better than this. There's nuances to anger. 
But if you find yourself looking for nuances, when you know really in your heart that what you're doing and your attitude before God is actually coming from a, a sense of God owes me, don't bother looking for nuances. We're told to turn to God and turn from that. Trust in Him alone. Anger is a powerful thing in our hearts, but it can be defeated by God's grace. Change can take place even in hearts that are burning with entitlement and hurt and fear. Turn to the Father. We've thought about the younger son, the older son, wants to consider the loving Father. And the question to consider is how does God act towards us and how will you respond? How does God act towards us and how will you respond? <clears throat> In my um, various studies over the year, I've done Greek twice. It hasn't made me any better at it. But you would think that by doing it twice there'd be certain things or words that would stick, uh, that would help me hide God's word in my heart, have some deep theological truth or insight. And those things do happen. But if you were to sit with me and ask, what words first spring to your mind from Greek above any other? There's two words. And I only know these two words because the first time I did Greek, we, uh, we had an exam on this exact passage. And we had just done a practice exam the week before on this passage. And the moment I opened up the exam paper and saw these two words jump off the page because they're repeated a couple of times, I was like, oh, I will never forget the blessing of those two words. Um, so if you want to use these words, you can, just don't use them in an insulting context. Sudeton uh, moskos, it's fat cow. Fattened calf. A cow purposely fattened up and built up for good eating, say for a special sacrifice or a very special celebration. Having grown up on a farm as well, I know how valuable one of these is. But in this time and in this, this culture that Jesus is speaking into, this was the ultimate, the most expensive thing probably that the father owned was this fattened calf. It's mentioned three times, hence why it jumped out at me as I read it in my exam. Verse 23, verse 27, verse 30, Jesus is making a point, this is expensive, this gift, this celebration. It's the cause of the older son's chief offence, the expense of this celebration of the father accepting the son back. The father doing this shows that he was prepared to give to his son, who deserved nothing, everything, the very best thing. Everything was the very best, the best robe that would have belonged to the father as well. The ring, the shoes, all from the father. But this, the fattened calf, the most expensive thing the father had. 
Father's showing there's nothing he was not prepared to sacrifice for his son. Of course, this reminds us of our loving God, our generous Father who has spared no expense for us. He has not withheld anything from us. He's given us his son. So why would he not freely give us all things? There's many times I'm sure you could identify with either one of these sons in this story. There's many times where I have been like these sons in this story. There was a time uh, in my life when I decided I wanted to do things my way. I decided that of what I wanted to do and did not care about any advice or counsel that was given to me to not do that. I actually got very angry with anyone that would confront me on the choices that I was making. I knew what I was doing was not setting me up well. I knew what I was doing was actually a sin in God's eyes. I didn't care. And just like the younger son in this story, it did not end well for me. It ended. It did not end well. My bad choices got me exactly what I wanted and what I desired. But in the end, I was alone, broken, and feeling like I would never be worthy of God's love again. I still remember a season in life where a certain song, uh, by third day, called Don't You Know I've Always Loved You. I still remember a certain season of life sitting and listening to that song on repeat because it made me realise how wrong I was about God. And the words from that song are taken from Psalm 139 where it talks about God uh, seeing our days even before we were born. The song, Don't You Know I've Always Loved You, even before there was time. That God has seen my days, seen my life lived out even before I was born. In his book, everything was written down before I was born. He knew exactly how I would live, the choices I would make. He still gave me life. He still divided his life to me. He still loved me. And most of all, that his love for me was not wasted. Expensive. Extravagant. But not wasted. The older son was concerned with the waste and the extravagance of the father's love. But nothing our father does is ever wasted. The father says several times it was fitting for us to celebrate. God longs for us to celebrate his love and forgiveness. There is a time when I think we should be sobered by the cost, by the cross and the death of the eternal son of God for us. We should be sobered by that. But to be forgiven by God is an amazing thing. And the fact that the Father welcomes sinners 
You know, with the younger son, the father is waiting, sees him a long way off, welcomes him back. With the older son, he entreats him, he goes out to him, pleads with him to come in. No one falls outside of the domain of God's invitation. No one. God's invitation does not discriminate between those who are good or those who are bad, those who count themselves good or those who count themselves bad. God's invitation is available to all. And the Father comes to us and says, I want to give you a place at the table. I want you to be my child. I've prepared something for you. The most expensive thing I have, I've given to you. It's fitting to celebrate that. It's also fitting to respond to that. And part of that response is turning our hearts to God. That will be the right response of turning to God and saying, I accept this gift. I don't deserve it. I've sinned against you. But thank you for your most precious and indescribable gift. There is a place at the table for you this morning. I would hope that you see that from this story and I also would hope that anything that you see in your heart and in your life that you long to see changed, I would hope that you see what the Father offers is better. Anything that you are desiring or wanting cannot compare to the most expensive thing ever given. Real change happens when we turn from our own desires and our own strength to trust in God alone and what he has provided. Let's pray. Father, this morning, we're so thankful for your love, your generous love, your extravagant love that you have freely given us all things in Jesus. And I pray that even this morning there'll be those of us here hearing this for the first time or hearing it again with clear minds and hearts by your Spirit, that we would respond by turning to you and putting our faith and trust in Jesus, not our own desires leading us, not resting in our own works or efforts, but turning to Jesus alone. Change us, Lord, right where we sit even in this moment and help us to celebrate the great salvation that we have. In Jesus' name, amen.